This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 21st, 2022, the Farewell Jocelyn edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. I'm wearing black crepe and a dark suit because this is Jocelyn Frank's last day as our producer after seven years at the helm. Oh, my goodness. I'm joined also in mourning by Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. Yes. We don't approve of this. I mean, we're excited because Jocelyn's going on to an excellent opportunity doing more podcasting at The Atlantic, but it is a sad loss for us. And in New York City, John Dickerson of CBS of Sunday Morning. Hello, John. Hi. <laughs> on, on that Dirge-like wow. note. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, I, just, I, I, I think we're going to save our comments about Jocelyn till yes. the end, are we? She would have wanted us to go out cheerfully. She, she does. Would have, She's still here. She to, well, she she would have, still she would here. She's still remembered. editing this show, so it's not like she's taking her hands off the wheel completely. This week on the Gab Fest, we'll talk to former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about China and its role in the Ukraine conflict and what that Ukraine conflict means for a potential invasion of Taiwan. Then a judge throws out the CDC mask mandate. Was it good law? Was it good policy? Then the RNC pulls out of the presidential debates in 2024. Will there be no presidential debates in 2024? Does this matter for democracy? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. We are joined by beloved GabFest regular Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm, of course, is the former prime minister of Australia. And throughout his career, he focused, especially in his political career, he focused on China and its relationship to Australia. We wanted to have him come on to talk to us about China in the context of the Ukraine war so, Malcolm, let me start. How do you think China sees this war going so far? Well, the, from Russia's point of view, the war's going badly. So whatever official lines are coming out of Beijing, the reality is unmistakable. The, the big question is, what lessons does Beijing learn from this? How is it going to influence their approach to conflict and in particular their approach to Taiwan? Right. So actually, just to lean into that, I was talking to a foreign policy the ex- expert the other day and This is not a subject I study, but he was saying, oh, it's consensus that in 10 or 15 years, China is planning to invade and conquer Taiwan. And do you think that so far the Ukraine war makes that more or less likely? I don't think it will deflect President Xi from his agenda of bringing, of of reuniting Taiwan with China uh, by force if necessary. Uh, That is, that is literally prior, you know, foreign policy priority number one. The question really is, does this change China's approach, change its timing, and how does it influence Taiwan and Taiwan's uh, friends and allies' attitude in supporting it? And what do you think about those things? What's your guess on how China's going to take this into account? I think in terms of timing, the window I would be very, I'd be focused on is actually much closer than 10 years. It's basically from the end of April 2024 to the end of May 2024. If the DPP, which is the current, the ruling party in Taiwan, which is, I wouldn't say pro-independence, but sort of very sympathetic to, if they win in January 2024, you're going to have in that year still one year left of Biden. 
And Biden had, has made it very clear he does not want to get involved in a conflict with Russia. So that would be interpreted, I think, as a uh, America being less likely to want to get engaged into a direct conflict with China. So they would regard that being a positive. And of course, the, the weather, the sea state, et cetera, in that period is uh, calmer. I mean, less fog, calmer seas. That would be the, I think, the earliest window which could be exploited. Um, in terms of what lessons would they learn from Ukraine? Well, firstly, go in hard and big or not at all. Cut off Taiwan's internet, jam its satellites, isolate it, blockade it, use their you know missiles to overwhelm all the command and control in uh, in Taiwan. They will have realised that without air superiority, it's very difficult. You know, Russia has not been able to achieve air superiority in Ukraine. And of course, they'd want to cut off the flow of information outside of Taiwan, recognising how successful Zelensky has been in using the media, social media in particular, to get his message across. What do you think China reads and what do you read from the alliance against Russia. You know, it doesn't include everybody. India, Israel, not a part of it. Does China look at that and say, well, everybody gathered together for Ukraine for this one, but actually all of those in member countries that did are getting severe pressure from businesses that want their economies to come back, that this actually proves that the pushback to moving into Taiwan wouldn't be that great, um, and that they might in fact be encouraged. What do you think of that? Well, that, that is that that is the key question. I mean, the economic boycott of Russia obviously has been very solid. I, I agree with you. There are some uh, big countries that have stayed out of it, notably India. But this this is going to have a over time a devastating effect on the Russian economy, particularly when Europe wins itself off uh, Russian hydrocarbons. Look, our economies are so much more integrated with China than they are with Russia. The, the invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions and the disruption is going to have a big impact, particularly on food prices. You know, Russia and Ukraine are enormous uh, uh, wheat exporters. Uh, Russia uh, is an enormous uh, fertilizer exporter. I mean, this is having impacts on farming all around the world. But China is, we, we're also integrated. And I, I think that a conflict with the West is going to have enormous, a little, it will produce a global depression. I mean, I remember Donald Trump said to me once, what would happen if we cut off all trade with China? And, and I said, well, you know, how does a global depression sound? This would be that on steroids. Do, do you think, given what you just said about China's incredible integration into our economy and, and into the economies of most of the world, is there an economic strategy which says we now need to build up a global sort of a a free world global supply chain that that actually ra what we need to be doing is weaning ourselves not just off you know Russian hydrocarbons but weaning ourselves off Chinese labor Chinese IP and building our supply chain in Vietnam in Japan in Thailand in countries that are going to be more favorable and and that that should be the economic strategy of the next 20 years. I, I think it's got to be a big part of it. I you know I just think we have to become very realistic here. If, if you look at to give you a practical example. So my government was the first in the world to formally ban Huawei from providing 5G in 2018. You know, I looked at it very, very carefully to see if we could mitigate the risk. But I came to the conclusion that we couldn't, that we just could not afford to give, in effect, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, leverage over such an important enabling technology platform in our economy. You know, we have to recognise that the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm not trying to sound like a Reds under the beds person, I'm nothing like that. But I mean, the, you know, this is an authoritarian Marxist-Leninist party, government, they are ruthless. They will do anything and everything to retain power. And you just cannot assume, even if you think they are benign at the moment, uh, you cannot assume that they will always have your best interests at heart. You know, and one of the fundamental lessons in 
geopolitics is is what is a threat. A threat is the combination of capability and intent. Capability takes a long time, generally, to put in place. Intent can change in a heartbeat. And so unless you feel that China's intent towards a society like the United States or Australia is always going to be benign, you have got to hedge against the possibility that that intent could change. What is the role of the UN in all of this? I was reading, I think Anne Applebaum was kind of questioning whether the UN needs to be rethought or replaced in some way. It seems unable to really take any action given the veto power that Russia and and China both have over some of its capabilities. And, you know, obviously, this is part of the world order that is important for preventing brute force from having the kind of effect it's having right now in Ukraine. What do we do about that? I would be reluctant to say, chuck out the UN if you haven't got anything else to put in its place. But I think the the reality is that in terms of a conflict directly involving, you know, Russia or China, uh, or you know, or indeed the United States on the other side of the coin, uh, you're going to see, use that veto, uh, see that veto used to, in effect, uh, neutralise the UN. And you know, I mean, Guterres has been criticised for not being more active in trying to settle the uh, Russia-Ukraine, you know, this this conflict. You could make a case, I think, that there is there should have been more activity to try to settle these issues well before this uh, invasion. Malcolm, what do you make of the general health of China at the moment? Um, Shanghai is shut down, locked down. There's a lot of uh, uh, coverage of, of upset in the street. And there's some writing that suggests, you know, between the fact that uh, the coronavirus started in China, that there is this revolt in what's happening in Shanghai, and given the fact that China has aligned itself with the butcher Vladimir Putin, that things are not going perfectly for Xi. Do you think these are small little issues that will resolve themselves or that it poses any kind of threat to the march he's on to, you know, with his very long timeline? Look, I, I think he has consolidated power to a degree we haven't really, we haven't seen in China since Mao's days. Economic growth was always made the number one priority, quite clear. And you see this with the way she has uh, roughed up, you know, leading Chinese business figures, you know, including Jack Ma. His political control is absolutely number one priority and the economy comes second. The COVID strategy they have is now absolutely disastrous. No country has done COVID perfectly, to say the least. But China's attempt to maintain zero COVID clearly can't work. In terms of what would threaten Xi's leadership in the near term, I think there are more or less two things. One would be an economic collapse, but I don't see that as likely. The other one, and this gets back to what we were discussing earlier, would be a, uh, a military misadventure, you know, an attempt to t- take Taiwan, which ended in defeat. From Xi's point of view, winning Taiwan by force of arms is not something, it's something that he should he would try to avoid if he possibly can. Because for a start, it's going to involve a lot of Chinese people getting killed from the mainland and from Taiwan. And uh, it runs the risk of defeat. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. Malcolm Turnbull is the former Prime Minister of Australia. Come back anytime, Malcolm. Thank you. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. You also can get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get unlimited reading on the Slate site. And you just get to support what we're doing here at the GabFest and at Slate. So our Slate Plus segment today is going to be a special one. We're going to hear from Jocelyn. She's been behind the mic. She's been not behind the mic. She's been, I don't know what you say when you're not behind. She's been away from the mic for seven years, and she's finally going to get her chance to speak her mind about uh, what she thinks about the GabFest and her experience here. And uh, it will be a pleasure to to get to hear her voice after she has 
made our voices sound so good for so long. So go to slate.com slash GFS plus to become a member today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, a Trump-appointed federal judge in Florida, issued a sweeping opinion striking down the Biden administration's mask mandate on public transportation, on federally uh, regulated transportation, airplanes, trains, buses. The judge found that the CDC had overstepped its authority in requiring masking and lifted the order for the whole country. So there are two kind of separate issues here, I guess interconnected issues. One issue is, from a legal perspective, was Judge Mizell on sound ground? Did she did she make a correct ruling based on the law? And what was she up to there? And the other is how is it as policy? Is the is lifting the mask mandate on transportation a, a bad policy? As someone who's about to take an intercontinental flight, I would find this very interesting. So, Emily, as legal reasoning, is it sound? No, and actually, the law and policy questions are pretty separate. So the CDC has the power, Congress has given it the power, to make and enforce such regulations as in its judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases from foreign countries into the states or from one state to another. And then the statute gives a bunch of examples of things the CDC can do, and that includes regulations providing for inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, et cetera, et cetera. So this ruling turns on Judge Mizell's interpretation of the word sanitation. She decided that despite the broad power that the CDC has to protect us from diseases, that sanitation had this weird narrow meaning that effectively meant you can clean things up afterward, but you can't uh, try to prevent disease from spreading through this power of uh, using sanitation to prevent disease. And she just based this on a very cramped definition of the word sanitation in the 1940s when this law passed. It's really pretty bananas, frankly, as a matter of textual interpretation, which is supposed to be what conservative judges care a lot about. And so what it looks like is she didn't like the policy, and we can talk about the policy. I mean, lots of conservatives and others uh, don't like this masking policy. But as a matter of law, this is very thin. And it also puts the government in this tricky position of deciding whether to appeal. The issues here are whether they might create some bad precedent for the government's regulatory power if a higher court affirms this ruling, they are indeed going to appeal. Is Emily, just on the bananas question, is it there two it's there are two categories, it seems to me. One is you hold a series of beliefs about the law and then you misinterpret something because of those beliefs. The other is you have a preferred outcome and you just drive everything to your preferred outcome. One is a kind of um, motivated reasoning in the moment. Another is kind of a flaw in legal reasoning. Which of these is this? I don't know because I'm not in her head. It is really a very unlikely reading of these words altogether. I mean, I guess you could argue that, you know, it's narrowing the government's power to regulate. And so that could be a kind of good unto itself from the point of view of the conservative judiciary, that you're sort of clipping the wings of the CDC and that's separate from the mask policy. But they do go together in this case. And um, one problem for the Biden administration is that if they let this ruling stand, it doesn't have any value as precedent. It Effectively, the judge issued what's going to operate as a nationwide injunction. And we can talk about whether that's such a great idea 
idea in a minute, but it wouldn't bind future courts. Whereas if the government appeals and they somehow lose in the Court of Appeals or they lose at the Supreme Court, that's a much bigger deal for future efforts to prevent communicable disease. I mean, Emily, doesn't this go back to something that I know that you've written about and studied, especially with respect to Justice Gorsuch, this attack on, I mean, it's the attack on the administrative state and Chevron deference, this idea that judges should be respectful, very respectful of the interpretation that an agency makes of a law, that that their laws, they have ambiguous words in it, and the agency, the experts interpret it. In this case, the CDC has interpreted it to mean that they have the right and they need to regulate masking on, on public transportation. And therefore, judges should sort of if the choice is respect the agency's position or kind of apply your own decision about what this language means, the the, the tendency had been or the, the standard had been to defer to what the agency said. But that's something that this whole conservative movement hates, right? Because it just gives so much power to these federal agencies. Yeah, they've come to hate it. I mean, the irony here is this uh, rule, it's called Chevron deference, is from an opinion that Justice Scalia wrote in the 1980s. But it does require courts to defer to agencies when statutory language is unclear or ambiguous, just like you said. I'm not even sure I think the statutory language really is ambiguous, so that's another problem for this ruling. But yes, absolutely. Um, that is certainly part of the story here. Emily, for a long time, uh, conservatives have said, I think particularly with respect to same-sex marriage, they said, how do we have a system in which an unelected judge can make a ruling for the entire country? So that's essentially what people are saying now with respect to this uh, to this decision. Untangle those two positions, which seem to be saying the exact same thing, but w- which cover two different cases here. Yeah, I mean, nationwide injunctions are unpopular if you're on the losing end of them, right? <laughs> so... If you have one judge who says, oh, we're striking down Obama's entire immigration policy, then uh, Democrats are not excited about that. If you have a liberal judge or a democratically appointed judge who strikes down a Trump policy, as you know, we saw sometimes during the Trump administration, then Republicans don't like that. It's a question whether this is a good idea or not. So far, the power remains on the books. This is has been in the past. I mean, it's also scrambled now. But remember, there was a day in which the people who complained about judicial activism and super powerful courts tended to be conservatives. They said, wait a second, just like you said, these folks are unelected. Why are we giving them such a huge role in American life and democracy? But that was like the era of the the Warren Court in the 60s and then the sort of continuing ways in which um, Supreme Court majorities continued to make rulings that basically liberals liked better than conservatives, at least on, you know, the big headline issues. Now, of course, the Supreme Court is mostly conservative and judges having a lot of power and being judicial activists, which usually means striking down an act of Congress, but can also mean messing with federal agencies in the way we see with this ruling. Well, suddenly that takes on a whole different kind of valence if you're in control. And so I think we're seeing some convenient switch of sides on this whole question of what the role of ju- the judiciary is. Can we can we go to the substance of this, John, for a minute, or more for more than a minute? When the the ruling came down, there were flights in the air where masking suddenly people no longer had to mask. There were cheers. People don't like to wear masks for the most part. They don't generally like to wear masks on planes for a long flight if they don't have to. There's strong evidence that people are just very unpleasant and surly on planes. And I I think masking is not all of it, but certainly part of it. There's seven times as many reports of passenger violence on airlines this year as there have been in previous years. So is this as policy a good policy from a health and well-being of the country? And health... I say broadly, because obviously it's not, COVID is not the only thing in health. Well, as a longtime epidemiologist, you know that my view has always been, um, Mm. yeah. So I, 
I guess I feel like I want to take a hold of it in a couple of different ways. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, an incredible record number of unruly passengers and 70% of that unruliness, according to the FAA, has um, has involved masking rules. Um, which, by the way, just as an aside, the airline industry said, you know, this forces uh, flight attendants to be engaged in activity they're not trained for. If you've ever let a tray table be not in the upright and locked position when you're in the wrong time period in a flight, I mean, they will pounce on you. So, like, administering uh, strict rules on planes does seem to me to be within the purview of a flight attendant. But maybe it's because they got so much That's other... not fair. It's so much... And it's... I don't know. It's, it's people, feel, people feel the mask is a much more profound threat to their bodily autonomy than they do about putting a My point is not that people don't, it's not, you're taking it from the wrong end. My point is that, that flight attendants have the capacity and know how to do this. It's a part of their job to monitor the way people behave. Now, the reaction is obviously the reaction we've seen. Nobody would deny that people hate to wear the masks on planes uh, and that that's created a new circumstance. I'm just saying that this new circumstance is not wildly out of what they normally do to keep people safe and in their seats. But anyway, the, on the question of health, what was a problem with this is that it was always, it it seemed disconnected from the differing realities. One, that the air filtration system in, in planes is actually quite good. Now, it's different on trains and buses, but that's that's part of the problem here is that it never seemed, it seemed to be super blunt. There was no room for, and this goes back to the question of which branch of government should be handling this. In a better system, you would have Congress deciding some of these rules because Congress is the closest to the people and would be able to handle the balance here, which is not just purely what does science say, it would be what is the mix of science and public view and feeling about this? After a long period of time, you can't be as strict because people are going to stop listening and that diminishes your ability to actually put in future public health measures that might be important should you need to. There are all kinds of other balancing ideas here that are best balanced by legislature, not by judges, and maybe not even by an executive science agency. But unfortunately, that's not that hasn't happened. Congress hasn't done its job in that. So whether it's a good idea, I guess the measurement would be whether, you know, we're in a situation where the health risks have now diminished enough that um, keeping the mask mandate in place it isn't required because of the costs, the other costs that, that are associated with doing that, which are economic and behavioral. I mean, I think this is the CDC's job. And I'm just going to um, follow Joseph Allen, who we've had on a guest on the show, who's at the Harvard School of Public Health. He wrote a piece saying, just like you said, John, the um, air quality is good on planes, except when you're getting on. Sometimes the planes don't run filtration systems while they're waiting, and they should do that. And also, we should still wear masks, I think, when we're getting on the plane and getting off just because everyone's all crowded together. And it certainly seems like buses uh, are probably the riskiest place. And I didn't read enough about trains to have some opinion about that, although I'm curious. So it just seems like part of the problem here was, like you said, the CDC was using this mask policy in this very blunt way. And I don't know, maybe the people who hate masks wouldn't care if it was more limited. But um, I think if there was a clear justification for all the different parts of the policy and it seemed like they were taking into account different levels of risks in different places that uh policy wise might go down better but also look the one-way masking is incredibly effective one-way masking and vaccination is incredibly protective and effective if you're wearing a really uh, good mask if right? you're wearing a good if you're a good mask so if yeah. you care you can you can allay your risks you can de- defer your risks. You can reduce your risks enormously. You can't reduce them to zero, but you can reduce them enormously if this is your highest value. Also, the fact is that lots of people were wearing really cruddy cloth masks that they had down over their nose most of the time, that they were, you know, found a way to be eating and drinking on 70% of their journey. Like the idea that, that, that you were massively protected by the behavior of others was always mythology. Like there's this tendency to be like, oh, these people who are don't want to mask, they're assholes who just don't care about my health. That's sort of, but maybe they're just like exhausted and frustrated and they are willing to take on whatever the extra risk is themselves. And they know that you can wear your mask and that you can be vaccinated and boosted and reduce your risk that way. And that they feel, and I actually, I, I keep coming back to this. This is like really 
it is so much nicer to live in a world where you're looking at people's faces and you're interacting with human beings. And that is a the fact that people are faces are covered all the time. It causes confusion. It makes it harder to communicate pe- with people. It's harder to have conversations with people. It's harder to smile at people and reduce tension with smiling because you're masked. And so it it's just like it's time. It's time. Like if if you it is true. You're going to be taking a slightly higher level of risk if you were only one-way masking. You're only have your own vaccination status, and everything else isn't. Everyone else isn't doing it. But it just the the benefits. It seems to me are so reached the point, especially because people just don't comply anyway. That you just have to bow to reality. It's 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 not. Um, yeah. Can I that's ask where I'm at a political question, which is if you're coming in and you're the Biden administration. And you know that Congress isn't going to take action to deal with this question. Congress, which has the right cartilage to deal with this balancing of issues, um, what science says, what what the country requires, and all of those things, David, you were just talking about. If you're the Biden administration, do you think, oh, my gosh, we spent this whole campaign saying we trust science. We're handing everything over to the CDC. We're not going to try and meddle. That that will, in in practice, become impossible because it requires you then to basically do what the CDC tells you to do and take none of the things that you've all just described into account and therefore put yourself in a bad political position. Should you have found some way to anticipate that? Right. I mean, I think that this idea of following the science was simplistic because it depends which risk you're focusing on. I mean, David was bringing up other aspects of this, right? Um, I mean, just to follow on that, I was interested that some of the flight attendants were making exactly the point you made, David, about smiling at people, that they've lost that as a tool yes. For, yes. for being amiable. You know, one thing I've been thinking about is that I think people, at least some of the people who really want mask mandates to stay, are basically making an argument about collective looking out for each other, right? That Yes, they're focusing on COVID risk, which, you know, is still killing hundreds of Americans every day. And they want the country not to experience masks as a point of tension, but as a point of collective cooperation and solidarity and making sure that other people feel safe. I definitely know older people who feel that way about it. I've especially been thinking about it in light of a piece that my colleague at The New York Times, Sarah Wildman, wrote about her daughter, who, as a cancer survivor, is immunocompromised. I am, you know, myself at a point where I also am really sympathetic to the idea that it does seem like people can reduce a lot of their own risk, and this can be a more personal calculus that depends on your own personal behavior. But I also understand the appeal of that kind of collective health and safety and common goodness. I just wonder if... Yeah, we failed. We failed that test. We failed. And so let's live in the world that we live in, which is that 40% of Americans just won't do it. They resent it. It's causing rage. It's actually, you can't compel people to act in this collective good at this point around that. You could have, you could have two years ago before there was vaccination, before like we understood that all the risks people were willing to comply and they were able to comply there is vaccination that's incredibly good people everyone who wants to be vaccinated can get the vaccines and boosters and a second booster except for like a tiny fraction of people and it benefits all of us even people it doesn't benefit as fully as it benefits fully healthy people with strong immune systems it benefits everybody so the vaccines exist we know that kn95 masks really really work we know that there are now good drugs and so the like the idea that it's that the collective act, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's not a it's not a cogent argument to say for the collective good, everyone needs to mask, even though I don't think there's she, no evidence that it it's it helps. She, I know Emily's not saying that. She's saying this that other people are saying right. But I would this. grab her territory and say the wisdom of the flight attendants is that that more through honey than through vinegar. That um, that the vinegar hasn't worked, mandates being the vinegar, um, and therefore it would be it would have been nice, and I wonder when the moment would have been, and maybe the moment is now, for someone to say, for people who have kids under five, for the elderly, this is still a big deal, and masks matter for them. And so while everybody can, can enjoy their liberty and not wearing them, there are some people who still want to, and, and in other words, create space for, find some... F- some public figure, some public way to create space for what you're talking about, Emily, since we would agree that mandates don't work. I don't know how that happens. It's immunocompromised people, I think, most of all. 
Um, and I don't know if, you know, I think fundamentally part of what you're arguing, David, is that for this particular expression of collective caretaking, the cost-benefit analysis fails at this point. Yes. And maybe yes. there are other things we could do. But I think the spirit of that, like, is important to just sort of think about trying to go forward. I know it's very hard for us to do anything in a kind of unified societal way, but um, I do appreciate that instinct. Oh, I love that instinct. I, I remember in the early days of the pandemic writing about this week after week. And I do think, like, I would love there to be something we could all come together around and, and collectively act and, and feel good about it. I just don't think that masking in, on airplanes is the one. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be nice if somebody could grab this moment, though, and say, you know, if the CD, I think Matt Iglesias made a point like this, which is the CDC should have rushed into the confusion and said, hey, while this is all being worked out, if you're still worried, here are the kind of masks you need. We'll, we're providing them to the public. Like, focus the message on this on this tiny point we're making. Which and um, just it's just that there has consistently felt like there's been a lack of a of a voice to be able to make these more nuanced points. I mean, has there also just been a problem where we haven't given ourselves credit? Like, we didn't pat ourselves on the back for the collective action that we did succeed in because there's always been the sense of, well, if we celebrate that, it's going to seem like it's over. And the public health folks never wanted to send that signal. I wonder if that's part of the problem here that leads to just this feeling of exhaustion. Th that's a really good point, Emily. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it is sort of, it's, although it's also slightly hard to declare victory when a million Americans are dead. Right. 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 It could have been so much worse, though. And people really did change their lives in a lot of ways. There were, like, so many, and continue to be, so many just small efforts to be accommodating, right? So, like, we focus on the failures, but there have been tons and tons of successes as well. Catfest listeners... There's a great new podcast feed from Slate. It's called Slate Books. If you have enjoyed our recent monthly episodes of GabFest Reads, you'll be able to find those episodes on Slate Books. And you're also going to find a ton else at Slate Books. You're going to find author conversations from other shows across the Slate podcast family. So if you love books, you love Slate, check it out. Subscribe to Slate Books. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Every so often, there's a topic that comes along that is just has John Dickerson's face etched in it. This is such a topic. The Republican National Committee voted to withdraw from the presidential debates staged by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Those are the three presidential debates, one vice presidential debate that we have every presidential cycle, always done at some you know, respectable university with some respectable, respectable journalist. Usually uh, uh, it's Jim Lehrer. It's always been Jim Lehrer. Jim Lehrer has moderated every debate, as far as I can tell, except the ones that Gwen Eiffel did. Um, so, John, what does it mean that the RNC has withdrawn from these debates? And did their complaint about these debates have any merit? Well, I tend to see this withdrawal mostly as a kind of two things. One, a kind of fundraising exercise. You always got to keep everybody, <laughs> you got to keep everybody outraged. And, you know, if, if uh, there are plenty of things to be outraged on, but let's not make sure the cupboard goes bare. So this is a kind of way to talk about how outrageous the, the norm keepers are. Um, and, and on the face of it, one of the complaints from the Republican Party was that they shouldn't have debates while the voting has already started. That seems to me to be totally reasonable. Um, and the second was that people shouldn't moderate the debates who've worked for one of the candidates. This is based on the idea that Steve Scully, formerly of C-SPAN, had worked as a part of a college program in the mailroom in the Biden Senate office. Um, as anybody who has familiarity with these kinds of programs knows, um, first of all, working in a mail office as I did for Senator John Warner, Republican of Virginia, is as far as you can get from that. Well, that's not true, actually. It's anyway. You you just it's open, the heart. You open you the mail so and you put it in the box. You open that mail. You are making policy. I yeah. I mean, but John has never revealed. He's, what a, is he's up a conservative Republican. John's a conservative Republican who worked for John Warner. Exactly. Oh my God. Exactly. Um, You've hidden it for so long. One thing that we you really actually I, I was about to be. Um, 
you know, stupid and pat about working in the mailroom. But it was actually really fascinating because if you took it seriously, you opened up all of this mail of people petitioning their their um, member of Congress. And you really got a sense before. And of course, this was in the 80s, the before everybody became hyper online and sort of uh, constantly had their own talking points whipped up for them. You you did get a real sense of the way people felt, at least in the state of Virginia. Do you mind coming back, stepping a few steps back from memory lane in the mailroom and telling us about? Yeah, so I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So that was kind of a silly, that was a silly thing. But mostly it's about shattering the norms the, if your if your idea is to get the i mean the project of the party at the moment because of who because Donald Trump is the head of it and is the likely nominee if he runs at the moment the job has been to shatter all the norms of the presidency all of these things that should be disqualifying for such a person you have to redefine those norms because the person who broke all of those things is likely to be the nominee so if you can if you can water down the norm keepers in addition to that fundraising portion I mentioned, then that's a good thing to do. And by the way, third point, debates are actually kind of um, primary, uh, general election debates are artificial and weird. This is not the Republican Party's complaint. This is my assessment. Um, it's not like they're something worth rushing to the barricades to defend because they need lots of uh, fixing. I mean, I presume that if Trump does run for president is the Republican nominee there, there will be debates of some sort. So he, Trump seems to love, I mean, he loves any occasion to appear before a mass audience. And no, but he got mad after he got bad reviews on that one debate. And it seemed like he had exposed Biden to COVID, et cetera. But that was, but that was, that was the same thing that's associated with this circus, which is the people who make judgments about me are all rigged and they're all, compromised and the whole thing is rigged so when the election so comes in and i lose up. you can say that it's been rigged i mean it's a That's i also true. think i also think he he's great at debates yeah i know he everyone's idea is that he loses but he always defines the debate he dominates it he whatever I happens mean, he did in debate, really he blow ma- that one let's be clear what do you mean the first no, one he did the one with biden yeah the first debate where he you're, you've glossed over that moment i think oh well, no no maybe well, you thought he did great he did dominate but it was kind of a disaster i guess under his own terms but, like, like don't you remember him looming over hillary clinton well, well yeah that, that is the classic image but that was another that was different another moment uh, that was the election he won there were a bunch of ways i mean that, that yeah, that debate with Biden, like, really, I think, but, matters. But he's, he's, like, he swept the floor in 2016 but with the Republicans in debates. Totally different. But three different, we're talking about three different things, which is important. By the way, just for all who are listening. The, with this not is very dis- much memory. This either. is disconnected from the circus of this moment, right? It, it, as the Wall Street Journal editorial page pointed out, it's perfectly reasonable and, in fact, fine to have the two campaigns debate with each other about how to set the rules for a debate. Like the idea that you have a commission, you know, there's some benefits to it. There are lots of downsides too. So, you know, this doesn't mean debates will necessarily go away. And it's often in the candidate's interest to have debates for all the reasons David said. But you've got three different kinds of debates. You've got the primary debates, which, speaking about the party, parties love primary debates because they can raise money off of them. And what would if you were really trying to make debates better, then the parties would say, you know what, we're not going to raise any money surrounding these debates. We're not going to let the candidates sell tickets to the audience. We're not going to do anything that, that besmirches the search for truth and the plumbing of the depths of these candidates by getting money involved. Of course, they're never going to do that. The second thing is there are two different kinds of presidential debates. They're the kinds when you have two challengers, Hillary, Trump, and then there are the kinds where you have an incumbent. If the Republican Party were behaving in earnest here, they would want debates because the incumbent president always has an awful first debate. They don't have time to practice. They think I'm president. I know what I'm doing. And they get, it's, they're awful. It happened to Obama, happened to Trump. In the end, the political scientists will tell you it actually doesn't really change the shape of the race, but that doesn't matter. So there are kind of three different kinds of debates that are, that are in the debate category. Do you guys think that the presidential debates are valuable i i mean i think it's pretty clear they're not they don't really shape the election they don't sway a lot of minds as a person who really values the norms and civility i think something that is watched by a majority of voters that's a meaningful shared experience that until trump came along involved nicety like you did have to shake your opponent's hand you had to like 
you know, pretend we're all engaged in the same process. I mean, Trump, Trump's destruction of that I find very painful. But the valuable, I do think that facade of political civility, that your opponent is a person, not a, not a monster, that has, is generally good. Although, and I assume post-Trump will go back to that. Maybe we won't. Yeah. But do you guys think that that's that. valuable? Yeah. yeah. I think the collective watching, the focus on it is helpful. I have no idea whether the commission is a net good or bad. So, John, if you're skeptical, I, I listen. Well, I totally agree with both of you. Having some kind of ceremony that tries to reset and remind us of the shared part of our civic experience is crucial. Um, I think... In primaries, the the debates have, I think, been quite useful and quite effect and and have changed the shape of the race. I was reminded this week as J.D. Vance, some old texts he's running for Senate in Ohio, some old texts were found in which he he wondered out loud whether Trump was like Nixon or Hitler. Which the reason they were being brought up is Trump has just endorsed J.D. Vance. But the reason he was texting with his friend was that Marco Rubio had just had such a bad debate moment and. Chris Christie, who was the author of this bad debate moment because he just just took it to Marco Rubio, said, you know, that was an that told us something important about Marco Rubio. This is Chris Christie talking now when I interviewed him for the book. And he said, presidency requires you to be able to handle things under pressure. And those debates put you under pressure and he couldn't handle the moment. And that told us something about how he might act in the job. And that was persuasive to me as somebody who wants debates to tell us something about whether the people on the stage have have something to do or have the qualities necessary for the job. The opposite of that would be the Democratic primary debates in which we had endless, endless, endless debates over and over again about head of the pin debates about universal health care coverage, which one little debate about that is interesting and fine and tells you some things about the candidates, but it was repeated and endless. And, you know, we haven't really had a lot of talk about universal health care in the two years of the Biden mm, administration. I wonder why not. It was just it was such an overweighting of individual party interests at the exclusion of larger issues and these foreign policy being one of them, but also this question of attributes that that it can be, um, you know, debates cannot be as illuminating. But I agree with the civic benefit of it, uh, to be sure. I just wish the general election debates had a little more to do with whether they had the skills for the office. Last question on this. I, I'm sure, John, you've ta- thought about this more than Emily, but I give it to both of you. What would be a good format for a presidential debate? Should they be moderated? I think you need a moderator. I really wish they would cut the mics. Well, I would like to, before we go to the public uh, on a stage debate idea, I still think there should be a written portion of the presidential debate process where it's just written and they can answer with all the time they need and they can use whatever sources they want. Because key questions like when have you been tested in your life and what did you learn? which is a really important question when you're going to get tested every nanosecond in the job. Like you either have an answer or you don't. And a question like that never really gets answered or, or asked, really. It never get, really gets asked in a way that makes them compelled. One of the great things about debates is, and the really useful things about debates, is candidates are compelled to give answers by the spotlight of the moment that are pre-Trump and mostly outside of Trump that are more associated with what they actually believe because they don't want to the, – the, the moment kind of pulls it out of them. Um and that's a reason to keep it. But there are lots of questions that just never get asked. I think have a, um, and should be asked, and you can ask them on paper. Um, cut the mics after a certain period of time is good. I think I think a moderator is, you got to have a moderator because of, to steer things from going down into a total rabbit hole. I have often liked the idea of the Lincoln Douglas, which is, you know, just a timekeeper. But that existed because Lincoln and Douglas had reasons to stay on the same topic. The problem with our politics now is each candidate rushes off to the topics their side cares about, and you don't have a debate. You have parallel press conferences. And I feel like only the moderator could keep it in the center. I don't mean ideological center. I just mean kind of keep it on on topic. Let's go to cocktail chatter. With cocktail chatter, you do not try to stay in the center. You do not try to stay on topic. You try to go to the thing that really interests you, Emily Bazelon. What's the thing that really interests you that you're going to be chattering about? So I read a piece this week that I thought was really interesting, and I also am flagging this piece because I like this genre. So it's in The Intercept. It's by Rachel M. Cohen. It's called, At a Pivotal Moment, Democrats Failed to Modernize Elections. And it's about the 
a huge funding issue for just the nuts and bolts of election administration, which was something I heard about over and over again in 2020, that the elections were underfunded. This was putting a lot of strain on state and local systems. And what happened in 2020 was philanthropy basically stepped into the breach after Congress um, authorized $400 million, but that was not anywhere near what the um, election officials said they needed. So a whole bunch of money showed up. A lot of it was donated by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. And then after that, there was a lot of complaining about this, that this was not a kind of neutral sort of funding and a whole bunch of Republican-controlled states, including Georgia, Florida, and Arizona, according to Rachel Cohen, passed new restrictions on private donations to election offices. Okay, so lots more money is needed. And what Rachel Cohen does in this article is show how this funding need kind of fell out of Democratic demands for the budget. And she really blames the Brennan Center for a lot of this. The Brennan Center is a really important advocacy group that works on voting reform and election reform. And it's basically a piece that says that the efforts to pass these big sweeping bills like the John Lewis Act that were going to address tons of aspects of voting took precedent instead of this funding request that might that was narrower, but really important and might have been more realistic. So what I really like about this piece is just that it's taking on a big advocacy group and questioning the policy positions that came out of that. I think that's like just good and healthy, and I'm glad to see this going on more and good for The Intercept. And then related to this, um, Rick Hazen, who is an um, election law professor who I really like and is on this all the time, he has a new piece in the Harvard Law Review Forum that's about the very concrete, relatively narrow things that Congress really, really needs to do to make sure we have free and fair elections that are not subverted after the fact. It's just a very nuts and bolts set of tasks that Congress is not enacting. And I know from the reading last week that democracy reform is not the thing that drives voters, but it continues to drive me. And so I flag both of these pieces. Well, it's doubled our reading last week as it's the driving voters, but also the attention, the lack of attention these things get because all the other stuff just is much more um, attractive to the attention world online. And so you end up undermining the thing that everybody's paying their attention to, you undermining it by paying too much attention to the wrong thing. Yes. And if our elections crash in 2024, it's just going to be so bad. We need to really prevent this. Truly. Come on, people. Okay. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is two years ago, I think it was in April of 2020. It was David, I think, who mentioned a piece in The Times by Stanford professor um, Catherine Olivarius, who wrote about the yellow fever in New Orleans and the way that during that gruesome early 19th century immuno economy uh, was created. Um, this was at a time when somebody in the, I think it was the Federalists or something like that, um, had suggested having sort of the vision, version of chickenpox parties. And that what uh, Oliverius was saying was in the night when this happened in New Orleans, it created this grisly warping of society as, as people who had gotten through yellow fever, that status was used to only make the inequalities and the gruesomeness of life in New Orleans under the um, yellow fever even worse. And and so it turns out that piece was the seed of a book that she'd been working on for 10 years that came out this week. It's called Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom. I started to read it, and it is incredibly engrossing, grisly, but really well written. And um, and it's one of those, it transports you to a time that is, at, on the one hand, extremely different, and on the other hand, you read sentences and you feel like you read them in the paper today. So it's called Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom. My chatter is not something new, something that was just resurfaced or anything. It's just something I happened to learn from a friend of mine was telling me this amazing fact, which I hadn't known. Amazing if you're interested in gazillionaires. I think it was this the fact I'm about to tell you was originally uncovered by Ken Aletta, the New Yorker writer, in a book he wrote about Google. And it's that one of the very first investors in Google, it turns out, was Jeff Bezos. That Jeff Bezos, in 1998, put in $250,000 into Google. That was a startup. Bezos had already had Amazon for a little bit. 
and it's not clear whether he held on to the stake. He definitely held it for some years. He may still hold it. He hasn't ever really answered the question. But if you forward that investment, he also made another smaller, later investment. Bezos would have $17 billion worth of Google shares. That Bezos not only is the richest man in the world from what he did at Amazon, but just that one investment that he made would be $17 billion which is just kind of crazy to think about that here's this person who who in addition to having made the greatest fortune the world has ever known in one company oh just as a side project you know he also made 17 billion dollars uh by just happening to make a good investment in in Google at the right time and i was ta- this friend i was talking to was saying do you do you think he's taken any of the money out and and this friend was positing oh maybe he took it out bezos took some of it out to pay for his rocket his rockets for blue origin. And I was thinking like, Oh, if when I have an investment, you know, if I've made some money on investment, I sometimes take the money and like buy myself a ping pong table. (laughs) But the idea that Jeff Bezos takes a successful investment and like colonizes Mars, that's what he can do at his scale. Anyway, I, I was just stunned by that fact. Listeners, you send us Great chatters. There are a bunch of really good ones that you sent to us this week uh, by emailing to us at gabfest at slate.com and also tweeting them to us at, at slategabfest. And our listener chatter this week comes from Randy Swit. It's right in the Emily Bazelon uh, wheelhouse, I think. Hello, my name is Randy Swit, and I'm a longtime fan and listener of the Gabfest. My contribution to cocktail chatter is a ruling on the case Compeer versus Nosret, Miami decided in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Many of us are taking extra care to tip our servers well at restaurants since COVID has put an outsized burden on them, and it's long been understood that bills for large dining parties of usually six to eight or more would often include an automatic gratuity or service charge. But such a service charge is reasonable because the servers are working hard and deserve that extra money, right? Not so fast. This case, Compeer versus Nusret, has ruled and confirmed that any billed amount that is mandatory is not considered a tip, even if they literally call it a tip on the bill. So an automatic gratuity or automatic tip can be used by the restaurant in any way they see fit, including keeping it for themselves, or as was the case in Compeer, counting it as part of the server's wages. So now I'm in a quandary. I want to make sure my servers are tipped well, but I want to make sure they're the ones who are receiving it. If I'm at a restaurant that includes an automatic gratuity, how do I make sure the server is the one that gets the tip? I don't know the answer to that. I guess I don't know what to say. I was surprised by all of this. And are you compelled by contract of whatever contract you engage in when you sit down and eat food? And at what point do you engage in the contract that you're going to pay for the food you've been given when you're at a, at, a, at a restaurant? Is it when you put it in your mouth? Is it when you order it? Because if you order it and then bolt, you've spoiled it. But anyway, whatever contract you're engaged in, are you compelled to pay the gratuity if it's put on the bill? I bet if it's on the, me- if it says on the menu yeah. that there's a compelled gratuity, then you'd be... Yeah. If you're not first learning about it yeah. when you get it on the bill. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, okay. But, but it is, it is, that's a truly shocking thing. The idea that, I mean, I guess I knew that tip theft was a thing, but the idea that it, that even when it says it is a tip, it says it's a gratuity for their service, and then they're literally just taking it and doing whatever with it is is terrible. Could you uh, could you pay for the portion on the credit card that is minus the automatic gratuity, and then pay the automatic gratuity in cash? And in that way, you're at least handing the cash to the server, and then you give them some possible leg up. Uh, I mean, I guess they would still have to report it. No, to the they tail. still have to put yeah. it in the kitty, I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, the idea that the restaurant is taking the tips is really bad. You would want to know that. I think the idea that they're dividing up the tips among the staff, that's, I'm okay. Right. I mean, that's I, I think fine. the thing you do is you ask your server, does this gratuity yes. go fully go to you? Yes. Oh, but that's and, complicated. Yeah, your, your, your plan, which is I'm going to bring cash. Sure, sure. No, 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 no. I, gonna, I, no, I believe I'm that. I'm, not. Credit, I'm going to ask them to charge me 78% my, of my credit card bill. I'm going to settle the rest in cash. My plan. That was not complicated at all. My plan was not founded on, on lack of complexity. No, I meant complicated for the server. Because what is because you can split the tips among your other servers, and then you can split the tip with the house. And those are two different kinds of splitting. 
So I'm just I was I was channeling the server for a second and trying to explain what the answer to your question is. Well, I think you say, does this all go to the staff? Do you guys all share this? And is okay, it, that's a, anyway. All right, that is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank for the very last time. Oh my gosh, Jocelyn, we cannot thank you enough for producing the Gap Fest so beautifully for seven years. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we'll talk to you more in the Slate Plus segment in a minute. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Ben Richmond is the senior director for podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategapfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Jocelyn Frank and Bridget Dunlap, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? There's just an epic moment here. I don't think Joss's voice has ever been heard. Maybe it's been heard on the podcast. No, yeah. We've had little bits of Joss, but Uh, not whole (laughs) sentences. I don't know. Maybe you cut yourself out. (laughs) Gabfest listeners, Jocelyn Frank has produced the Gabfest since 2015. Jocelyn has just done a magnificent job. She's made us sound better. It's like incredible for somebody who's too who just does this week after week. And every week she makes us sound less stupid. Me in particular, <laughs> she just makes the show. If you heard the show as we spoke it, you'd think these people are not as smart as I thought they were. This is not as good a show as oh, I thought they were. But don't divulge these secrets. But Joss has done such a <laughs> also, great job. Also, don't assume that anybody thinks we're smart. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah, Two mistakes that's in true. Don't worry, um, I'll edit it. <laughs> uh, so... Joss, uh, this Slate Plus segment is yours. I mean, we can ask you questions, but we just want to hear from you. What have you learned? What do you want to tell us? You know, what's our worst habit? What's your favorite moment? Anything you want to say? Sure. Thanks. I I appreciate it. And you guys have made it clear from day one that you wanted to have me around. And that's really nice. uh, Listeners might not know that I was pseudo recruited for this job and semi stolen from a different political podcast at Slate. So um, I've always felt very appreciated. And, um, and that's made a big difference. Uh, What listeners might not realize is what I actually do again and again. So as an offering to listeners and as a parting gift to you guys, if you need any reminders, um, I offer this little look behind the curtain of what actually happens at the Political Gab Fest to get it made. (laughs) So stand by for better or worse. This could be very painful. (laughs) I know. (laughs) In thinking about what to say after seven years with a team, I decided to say what I've said a few times before. So, should we do some ads? David and I kick off each episode by meeting early to record the ads. Now this is the place where a different producer might play all sorts of embarrassing clips of David cursing at himself and calling himself Plotsy. But Slate Plus listeners already know that he's hard on himself. So just imagine all of that being delivered with gusto at seven in the morning. I occasionally, and with mixed success, try to talk him down. The idea is low stress, have it done. Plots always pushes through and delivers with shining colors. And then, at least since 2020, it's time for all three hosts to get rolling on their personal recording devices from the peace and quiet of their individual homes. John is rolling, he already said. External mics plugged in. It sounds like we're getting your voice through your earbuds and not through your microphone. So I just want to double check. Hey, David, is that siren with you? <laughs> Windows closed. Phone off. David, you're rolling. Those headphones sound a little funky. Is there laundry going or something clicking in your background? So your <laughs> headphones are plugged into your computer. You're recording on your side. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. It's a show time. Oh, Emily, you're you're muted, but I'm sure whatever you just said was wonderful. <laughs> Based on your facial expression. <laughs> I may be leaving the Gabfest, but the team is sturdy. And as a team, we work hard to get it right. And with our really tireless researchers' help over the years, we usually do. That means we occasionally go back to re-record some small detail, a line here or there. We call those corrections pickups. All right, we have a handful of pickups. One is for David. <laughs> Can I have the very top lines? All right, we got one or two pickups. Two are for Emily. Bridget, what's the real number? 43 billion? One line retake for John. Just do it one more time, the end of that sentence. Excellent. Thank you so much. Excellent. 
great. Great. Sounds great. Great. Awesome show. I'm just, I'm shocked at how positive this show is. Just um, send me that file that you made. Okay, that's all I've got. Thanks, guys. Yay. Yay, that was great. (laughs) (laughs) That was very sweet. I do have a couple of actual serious things to say. Um, If you can bear with me for a couple more minutes, uh, you know, being on a show for seven years, it's fun to have a good time. But also, there are some really serious and meaningful lessons that you've all really imparted to me and things that I'll take with me. And the first is just something that all three of you do, which is that you absolutely lead by example. Every day that we've gotten to work together, I get to learn from you. Um, John, one of the lessons that you have absolutely demonstrated for me is... That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash plus and become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.